This is the Shift Podcast. And this is Martin Strong in for Shane. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, how do romantic movies change the way we go after love in real life? Zoriana Zerba, assistant professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, uh, studies romance in films, and she tells us the good and bad ways that movies change our perception of love and what makes a good romantic movie. So a piece of the sun apparently detached from itself. What the heck is happening? Andrew C. Ferreira tells us about the sun's solar vortex that is taking the internet by storm. Plus, why SpaceX's new rocket could help put humans back on the moon and help us stay there. Are you okay with handshakes again? How about traveling? All that on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. How much do movies affect the way we think about romance? Zoriana Zerba knows a thing or two about that. She's an assistant professor at the Toronto Metropolitan University, and she's done a lot of research into the philosophy of love, and she's here now. Thanks for being here, Zoriana. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So uh, as you, you know, uh, it's Valentine's Day on Tuesday, and our listeners have just picked the movie Dirty Dancing as the best Valentine's Day movie of all time. And so that's kind of gotten us inspired to talk about romance and movies. And uh, before we kind of get into your expertise about how the movies shape our lives and, uh, you know, make us uh, worried that we're not doing enough or whatever, um, (laughs) I got to ask you about Dirty Dancing. Uh, Are you surprised that our listeners here at The Shift picked Dirty Dancing. And this was over some heavy hitters like The Notebook and Sleepless in Seattle. What are your thoughts? Mm, They chose Dirty Dancing over Sleepless in Seattle. Mm -hmm. I was very surprised myself. I do love Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, Yeah. I mean, what I love about Dirty Dancing, actually, before before I give a critique, What I do love about Dirty Dancing uh, is that, you know, we have the baby character and Johnny joking around with each other, right? And so we do see them developing some really fun chemistry, right? Right. We have these two characters who initially don't really think much of each other. They come from very different worlds and they're brought together really from baby wanting to help out Penny, right? Is kind of how I remember it. And maybe your listeners are going to say, oh my gosh, she doesn't remember this film at all. But I remember it coming, you know, baby wanting to be supportive and helpful. And so we have this romance that develops kind of out of a situation that, um, it's a bit of a challenge, right? But they end up having these like really fun inside jokes. And so, you know, in terms of like romance, I think that for me, what I what I like about this film in terms of the romance is the sort of like jokey, um, the jokey relationship between the two main characters. That's interesting. Yeah. And because the thing I was thinking about with Dirty Dancing compared to something like Sleepless in Seattle, Dirty Dancing has kind of that simmering sexuality underneath that's been being repressed and it's repressed and you can't do that and we're dancing no you can't do that and and i think that maybe that's what people are responding to that sort of repressed sexuality um mm-hmm. might be kind of exciting mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because baby baby isn't even supposed to be at that dance that she gets invited to, right? The first time that she encounters that kind of dancing, mm -hmm. right? It's like she's crossed over from um, being at the being in the barracks where she's supposed to be at the, that camp, right? To being with the workers, yeah. uh, and so she's kind of entered into this more dangerous territory. Yeah, and it's in the title, "Dirty Dancing." Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, so, so if you had to, somebody came up to you and said, what's your favorite Valentine's day movie, mm -hmm. or what do you think the best Valentine's day movie is? What would you say? I'm going to have to go with the classic and I'm going to pick Stanley Doonan's funny face. Funny face. Yeah. When, when was that made? I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to say it's the early sixties and I hope right. I'm right. Cause I don't know that one. So it's an Audrey Hepburn film. Oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> and now I know it. Yes. Yeah. I, so Audrey Hepburn, uh, you know, begins as a bookkeeper and then she's discovered in part by accident by a photographer and a fashion editor who need a location to shoot some models. And they walk in and they find this, you know, this sort of mousy girl stacking books. I think they even refer to her as ghastly. <laughs> They take off her glasses and they realize that actually she's quite striking and they convince her to become part of their little modeling set. Um, and eventually slowly Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire fall in love and get married at the end. Yeah. Audrey Hepburn is, uh, is something else. I just watched a movie with, I wish I could remember the name with Albert Finney and uh, they're traveling. They're a married couple that is traveling around Europe and they're sort of remembering their life and uh and and they used to be romantically in love but now they're kind of on the outs and they're fighting all the time and it, it was quite good and and Audrey Hepburn is such a a great romantic character i don't know what it is about her because she's kind of she's got a bit of a a, a boyishness about her mm -hmm. i don't know if that makes any sense yeah she's yeah, mean yeah have you seen a movie called They Came Together with Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler? No, but I do adore Paul Rudd. It's from 2014. And you know how Airplane, the movie Airplane, uh, was uh, all about disaster movies, but it was just ridiculous. They just took all the tropes from the disaster movies and made it a ridiculous comedy, Airplane. This is the same thing except it's the rom-com the romantic comedy and they just parody the romantic comedy and it is so funny and uh, it's from 2014 and it wasn't really uh all that successful it was directed by david wayne who directed uh and was one of the creators of wet hot american summer which is really funny but it's really funny because it destroys all the tropes of mm. of romantic movies and it's good i i mean you must uh, when you watch movies now, modern movies, you must be able to kind of dissect them and go, oh, yeah, that's the classic trope of the meat cute where they're mm -hmm. from different parts of the tracks and all that stuff. Absolutely. Um, but I have to say, regardless of, you know, sort of knowing the genre and knowing what's coming, that doesn't mean that I enjoy the films any less. Really? Yeah. And so, you know, I often have, I, I remember taking my first film theory class you know, way back when, and the person across the hall or across the, the wall of the way said to me, you know, I know what I'm going to get out of this class. and it's gonna, I'm going to start hating film. And I felt the exact opposite. Um, I felt like it gave me a new way to not only see 
film, but also to engage with the world around me. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, film is the greatest. I, I love film myself. So, so let's talk a little bit about film and romantic love and uh, our, our attitudes toward love. And obviously movies have a, a huge impact on that. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's overall a healthy impact or does it set up unrealistic expectations, especially for love? That's a really great question. I suppose it depends, you know, let's, let's, if we can even break it down further, right? If, is it about a romantic expectation or is it about a loving expectation? Because if we think about a lot of the romantic comedies, usually they end with the couple coming together, right? Or what we might call in film theory, the unification of the couple. Mm-hmm. But what we don't really necessarily see is the long, that's like the long game, right? What happens eight years in after the kids are born, when things start getting a little bit stale, right? How do we reignite that passion, right? How do we reignite that all those sort of um, fireworks feelings that the romantic comedy is sort of known for? Mm -hmm. And so if we're, you know, if the expectation is this you know, maybe it's even a kind of a mystery, right? We have this death to us part that comes after the unification of the couple, but so few films really delve into that. I mean, we, we, we mentioned Paul Rudd, like Paul Rudd, you know, the, um, the film, this is 40. Yeah. We see Paul Rudd as a sort of, you know, he's struggling a little bit in his career. He's got a beautiful wife and two fantastic kids who, you know, care for him very deeply. But we see that kind of, you know, the, how what the mundane everyday life is really like, right? Or that gets parodied in a film like Friends with Kids, right? Where mm-hmm. the parents look exhausted, right? And it's easy to make fun of, it's easy to make fun of our friends who are exhausted, who've got kids. I, I say that, that <laughs> I myself am, am an exhausted parent. <laughs> I'm going to throw myself under the bus too. Um Right. But it's it's easy to sort of poke fun at that. And it's a little bit harder to make that in a way romantic or it's harder to show that on screen, I think. Yeah. And it seems like something that people uh, respond to, like this is 40. I think people thought, yeah, this is they they made fun of that kind of uh, work that a relationship is, that a that a marriage and a loving relationship. It kind of reminds me, Albert Brooks was actually in that more that movie as Paul Rudd's dad. And he made a movie called uh, Modern Romance. And it's so funny because it's this really frustrating love affair. And at, at the end, they get together. And I think at the the very end, they get together. And then the screen goes to a, a superimposed line. And I think it says that they were, I'm paraphrasing, they were uh, they got married. They were divorced eight months later. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was perfect. <laughs> In terms of of a movie that's just a beautiful, healthy representation of romantic love, um, what's what's another one that you would uh, like? If someone came from another planet and mm-hmm. said, uh, "I I would like to see a representation of how humans get together and have romantic love," what movie would you send them to? Wow. And they're aliens, so they can speak any language, and uh, they don't mind going to the theater. Oh, I mean, who doesn't mind going to the theater? Yeah, they do. That's where the magic happens. Yeah. 
Oh, I put you I, on the spot there. No, I, I, but what I, what I was actually going to say is I, I almost, I mean, if I can just sort of extend the fantasy of this question, I would almost ask those aliens if they had a bit of a time machine, right? Where we could move forward in time, right? To see what kind of representations that are coming, right? So if we're actually asking for, I mean, number one, you, you use the word healthy, which I thought was an interesting um an interesting word to qualify romantic love, right? Because that what <laughs> implies is that um, you're underscoring in a way that kind of, uh, can I use the word maybe madness or the sort of instability that comes with romantic love? And when we say that, I, I really want to be careful because I don't mean love is in a long-term relationship. I really mean the sort of early stages, right? The infatuation, the limerence. And so it's challenging to talk about crushes as being healthy because in a way they're always, it's an, always an idealization of the other person, right? So the, when does the crush become healthy? I think the crush becomes healthy when we see the other person for who they are. And so if we're going to be inviting an alien to come with us to a film with a healthy crush or healthy infatuation, I don't know if I've seen that one yet. <laughs> that's, oh that's interesting because it is funny that you talk about the the crush and the love at first sight because one of the tropes of romantic comedies is that whole meet cute thing where uh like for example and they came together uh yeah. amy poehler plays a woman who has a completely unrealistic uh independent candy store in manhattan and then paul rudd works for like uh candy limited a huge big multinational candy company that's trying to put her out of business so when they first meet they just they they kind of uh they they sort of share a moment and then they realize they're on opposite ends and they hate each other but of course they come together so um i mean how does wh why is that such a such a trope yeah it's just like sleepless in seattle right in sleepless in seattle meg ryan plays the independent bookseller Right, and her right. bookstore be overtaken by the big shopper that's coming up around the corner, um, right? But we see this also in um, uh, in Dirty Dancing, right? We have these forces that are pulling us together. We see it also in uh, West Side Story, right? In West Side Story, it isn't it isn't um, about class, but it's about race, right? And so it sets up. It sets up the couple as being in a way kept apart, right? They have more odds to overcome or they have this challenge to overcome. In part, sometimes I think about it as the hero's journey, right? So it isn't just about the hero having to go on this quest, but it, it puts love in the position of being a bit of a quest, right? Finding this perfect other, right? Or this, the, you know, the, the kind of the, the one, if we believe in the one, Right, so that we need to overcome all these other cultural forces or these other forces to get together with this person that we're, or you know, we're supposed to be, or we're meant to be, or fated to be together. Yeah, that's that's interesting. The hero's journey. I've, I've done some reading about that, and that's the thing of the steps that they have to go to. And if you look at movies like Spider Man, they have to mm -hmm. the elixir, and the, and it's it's sort of this blueprint for an action adventure movie. It would be interesting, and in that something you could do uh write write the romantic the romantic movie journey and no they have to meet and hate each other <laughs> and then they have to do this and they have to do that 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you know, when you mentioned this idea of the sort of like the healthy romance, when one film that um, came to mind was 500 Days of Summer. Right. I don't know if you've seen that one, right? Where I know about it. I don't, I, I honestly can't remember if I've seen it. Yeah. So we, we follow the, um, the protagonist whose name right now is escaping me apologies, but he ends up having a bit of a, yeah, a crush. And then eventually he sort of starts hanging out with this girl named summer. And it's, he seems to be sort of falling in love with summer and, you know, she breaks it off with him and then gets engaged to someone else. And he is just devastated. And there's this hilarious scene where he's going through all of the things that he was so attracted to initially. He mentions her cute knees, the way she smiles, the way her eye, the way her eyes wrinkle. Um, that she has this a little mole on her neck. And then there's a cut, and it's like all the things he hates about summer: her cockroach-shaped mole, and the way that her, her obnoxious her laugh is right. And so there's this, you know, all the things that he thought were so special about her when he was having a crush on her or all the things that he did, you know, ended up despising about her once that crush was gone. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's interesting how quickly um, these quirks or these things that make every, make people very unique, how we how are thinking around them, right. Shifts so quickly, depending on our, our emotional state or our feeling state. Yeah. It's completely irrational really in a lot of ways, I guess. So I, and that's where the, the word healthy is kind of tro- uh, troublesome. Um, and I, I looked under your areas of research. One of them was uh, the philosophy of love, which uh, kind of uh, intrigued me. So tell me a little bit about what you believe to be the philosophy of love. Yeah. So we have, uh, if it's okay, I'm going to start at the beginning with Plato, right? Okay. So we have this. <laughs> Right, so should, I t- have- should I take notes? <laughs> Is it going to be on the exam? No, I'm kidding. Please continue. <laughs> it might be on the exam. Um, right. So if we, if we go all the way back to sort of these early conceptions and part of the reason that I, I want to go back all the way to all the way back to Plato, all the way back to ancient times is because so many of these ideas still exist. Right. And so many of them, uh, if I can give homework to the audience, right? As you're looking at Valentine's Day cards, take a peek as to how many of them in a way are paraphrasing Plato or Plato's ideas. So Plato has this idea that there were these creatures that were round, right? They're these circular creatures and they ended up being divided into two, right? So once they were split, they were always looking for their other half. And when they were separate, Right. When they were apart, they were in pain. They were hungry. They didn't want to do anything. They were, they lacked motivation. And all they wanted was to find their other half, the other half that completed them. And once they found their other half, that's when they were joyous and that's when they were happy. Right. And so, right, you can see, you can hear automatically, right? This idea of, you know, these two halves becoming one, my other half, my better half. Right. So, so many of our, even our contemporary ideas are really rooted in these very, this very old story. Right. So the philosophers that I'm really influenced by, I don't want to say that they flip the script, 
but rather than encouraging us to seek out our other half or our, you know, our better half, which is a phrase I'm not so keen on. (laughs) (laughs) What they encourage us to do is to think about the ways in which we first need to take care of ourselves and support ourselves so that when we encounter the other, right, when we encounter someone that we intend to love, we can recognize them for the beauty, for the uniqueness, for the specialness that they are. But that also, we need to maintain that specialness, right? So if we're thinking about this idea of right, the, um, the crush, romance, right? Crush and romance idealizes our other, right? We think of our lover in these really special terms, right? They're infallible, right? But at the same time, we kind of want to get to know them so that we can figure out what, what's going on there, right? Instead, what I, the philosophers that I work with, people like Lucy uh, Rigore, we want to maintain the sort of mystery of our lover, right? Of our lover, which doesn't mean that we don't want to get to know them, which doesn't mean we don't want to know what their hopes are, their dreams are. It doesn't mean we want to support their, we, you know, we, we don't want to like support all of that. Absolutely, we do. But what it means is that their dreams and how we support their dreams might change, right? So the dream that maybe they had when they were 26 to go, um, you know, to fix up a VW van and travel across Canada at 45, when maybe that's more materially tangible because maybe now they've got some money saved up, maybe that's no longer a VW van. Maybe instead it's taking a via rail train to go across Canada. Or maybe when we're 65 and we're, you know, thinking toward retirement or we're retiring, maybe instead of it being on a via rail, maybe it means taking short flights across Canada, right? But it's about checking in on the lover's dreams, right? Recognizing that on the one hand, we want to be supportive of our lovers, but that also that we too, right, need to be supportive in ourselves, and always need to come back to ourselves. I think sometimes it's called um, keeping your side of the street clean, right? We want to make we're we're in our emotional regulation, right? So that we're not just like dumping all of our stuff on our, our other. I think that's, uh, I don't know if I would call that advice, but I just think that's lovely. So thank you so much. Zoriana Zerba, thanks for thank uh, doing this. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. This is The Shift Podcast. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. Well, thanks for being here, Andrew. How are you doing? It's been too long, Martin. Yeah. Been a while back in the olden days. In the when olden we days, then we used to use fax machines and, <laughs> uh, of like the olden days of what 2020. <laughs> yeah, when we, we, we used to work together. But it's funny when you talk about the olden days. When you start looking at the sun and you look at like what's going on with this James Webb telescope going back hundreds of millions of years, showing us what it looked like. Uh, the 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 era of the fax machine looks like a an atom 
in an ocean. It's such a it, time is so huge. It just kind of blows my mind. And I mean, you know, there are there still are many places, especially, you know, in the medical field that still rely heavily on on facsimile machines. Um, <laughs> That's a good there's point. There's another one, you know, the, and especially if there's a lot of, you know, secure documents that need to be sent along. Boy, howdy, do governments still like their facsimile machines? Yeah. Um, but I digress. It's funny uh, that it's called a fax machine with an X because it is based on the word facsimile. It's a facsimile machine. Why isn't it a fac? I guess that sounds kind of kind of close to a, a guess, word that we, you know. I, I guess I guess you're right. <laughs> well, let's get to the sun and the sun's being weird. Uh, so basically, tell us what happened. Some a piece of the sun broke free. What's going on? He, yeah. So basically, uh, you know how like on Earth, um, you know, in Canada, we get you know polar vortexes, and these this become one of these brand new kind of catch all. Uh, meteorological buzzwords that all the kids like, um, you know, along with atmospheric river, like suddenly we're starting to put words to phrases to these things that are happening in our environment. Uh, and so a good way to kind of think about what is happening with the sun is essentially it's a solar vortex. Um, what we essentially saw was parts of essentially a prominence. A prominence is essentially um, kind of like an arc of plasma that kind of rises up from the surface of the sun. Uh, then kind of jumps back down to the surface and it follows magnetic field lines that are everywhere on the sun. Um, and just as, as a step back here, it's important to remember that the sun is quite literally a gigantic uh, nuclear reaction that is essentially only held in place by gravity. Um, gravity is the only thing that kind of keeps it together, but there's a whole lot of energy uh, pent up in there. You know, you stick your hand out on a hot sunny day and you feel warmth, Yeah. right? you turn on your stove on maximum and you stand across the room, you can't feel it. Right. And we're talking about a, a gigantic ball, you know, about a million earths could fit inside of the sun, um, you know, about 98 ish million kilometers away. Um, it's kind of crazy to think about just how big the sun is. A million earths could fit inside of it. It's, you know, hundreds of millions of kilometers away. And when you stick your hand out into the sun on a hot day, you can feel it and it becomes uncomfortable. Yeah. Right? It's so, incredible. So when you think about what's happening on the sun here, it, it's all this energy that's pent up like this. Uh, and every now and again, we get, um, you know, you're probably familiar with solar flares, right? And these are what happens when prominences essentially snap. Uh, when they essentially, that arc essentially whips open, just like a bullwhip. Uh, that kind of action, when a magnetic field will break essentially, uh, or kind of rotate or twist around in such a way that it can't sustain that shape, uh, it'll essentially fling solar material at the Earth, and that's what a solar flare is. And of course, these can have you know effects from benign, such as amateur radio blackouts. Well, if you're an amateur radio enthusiast, that's not benign. Um, but on the whole, benign thing, stuff like that, to you know, aurora down to lower latitudes. Um, to there was a famous event called the Carrington event um, that happened, I believe, in the early 1900s, uh, and it was a solar flare so powerful that essentially it overloaded telegraph wires on Earth. Wow. Uh, and it caused enti like entire telegraph systems to fail. Um, you know, wires on Earth started smoking from the <laughs> sheer input of, electro of electric and magnetic energy. So these things can be pretty bad. Um, what we saw wasn't exactly a solar flare. It wasn't pointed at us. It was just kind of a, a piece of a prominence, this arc that kind of snapped away. Uh, and instead of kind of just dissipating, it's kind of just orbiting the North Pole of the Sun. 
Um, and of course, when you look at, um, you know, Global News has a great little uh, video from actually Dr. Tamitha Skov. She's a great follow if you're a, a, a huge space nerd. Uh, she does space weather forecasts, which are cool. Like, mm-hmm. come on, that's cool. <laughs> um, and like, she's posted a great video and you can see um, in sped up time what this polar solar vo- polar solar vortex, try saying that five times fast, um, looks like. So you can kind of see a prominence kind of jet up from like the top of the sun. Uh, it tries to arc down, but it seems to get caught in some, cord- in some sort of magnetic current and it gets swept around like almost looks like cotton candy going around in a machine. Right. Um, so again, that, that story is on globalnews.ca. Cool. Um, so I want to, I want, I, I want to ask you about the James Webb telescope, yeah. this $10 billion telescope. And I'm guessing one of the reasons why we are seeing this is because of this telescope, right? Incorrect. Actually. Oh, really? um, the okay. James Webb, tel- the James Webb space telescope. And, uh, I will never, I will always have time for the JWST. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I like to describe it to folks. Um, as a $10 billion night vision camera. Um, So it needs to be kept incredibly cold and it needs to look for the dimmest of the dim of the dimmest of light. Uh, So if we pointed it even at the earth or even a full moon, it would blow out the instruments. Oh, really? That's how sensitive this telescope is. It essentially has to look into pitch black. Um, It can spot stuff like asteroids. It can image things like Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, but it's not really meant for these things. Um, these things are kind of delicate and they have to be careful with when they're pointing it at objects within our solar system. Because if there's a little bit too much light, it can, it can you know, shock the sensors, essentially, inside the telescope. Um, so we would never use the, uh, the James Webb to look at the sun. Uh, what we do use to look at the sun, though, um, and the footage taken uh, by Dr., uh, Dr. Skov was taken by NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory. Um, and there's all sorts of ground-based and um, space-based telescopes that their only job is to stare at the sun. Cool. Um, yeah. So there's a whole lot of them, and they all are watching because, like I mentioned before, if the sun lets off a solar flare in our direction, we probably want to be aware of that. Yeah, it's important. Um, we're talking to Andrew Ferrer from the Vancouver Science Center about weird science. And uh, before I let you go, I, I have to ask you about Elon Musk's a SpaceX rocket, this new Ugh. rocket Starship, and he was testing it. And like, how cool is this thing? Is this is this a game changer? It it's been SpaceX itself has been a game changer. Um, and as you know, as time goes on, and Elon Musk becomes more and more of this just absolutely insufferable presence, um, <laughs> it becomes you know kind of a weird topic when you talk about SpaceX. It's, it's interesting because, you know, I, like, like you mentioned, I work at the uh, Space Center here in Vancouver. Um, kids will, you know, I'll, we'll often ask kids if they have a favorite, like, astronomer or something. And a lot of them will say Elon Musk. And I'm just like, oh, God, please, no. Uh, <laughs> do not be like him. It, the personality side of it, don't. Um, but I digress. Um, Starship really is a game changer. It's they're planning to do an orbital test flight in the next couple of months. They're going to essentially fire the, the rockets, 33 in total, uh, attached to the bottom of this gigantic, you know, exploding candle, essentially. Uh, they're going to get it to orbit, land it, and that'll be the first test. And in this kind of brand new race to the moon, right, we're seeing a repeat of, of, the, of the, uh, the space race, right, from the late 60s. We're seeing a repeat of this. Um, but now the goal isn't just to get somebody to the moon, it's to get to the moon and stay there. 
Um, and NASA has actually realized that their own rocket, the Space Launch System, the SLS, gorgeous thing, it had its first successful test flight in December and January. Um, but it's not going to be ready in time for their original goal of 2024. Uh, even Starship is probably not going to be ready for 2024. So they've they've kind of moved the dates back a little bit to, I believe it's now 2026, um, is when they hope to have Starship be the first delivery vehicle uh, back to the moon that'll, you know, have humans on it with the ability to, you know, uh, land, take off, and act in the same way that the Eagle module um, did for the Apollo missions, except this is a gigantic mega rocket. Like you mentioned before, it is, you know, at full capacity when it's fully you know, loaded and, and firing all its rockets, it will be the most powerful rocket ever created. So, so um, really, what's the the point of all this extra power? Because they they can already get to the moon. It just gets there faster, safer. No, actually, the the point isn't speed necessarily. The point is that uh, SpaceX and NASA both see the moon as an intermediate stop. The moon is kind of where we're gonna you know flex our muscle. Uh, Starship is actually built with the intent to send people to Mars. Um, you know, if you're familiar with Elon Musk, that's been one of his favorite things to drone on about. Um, and, you know, whether or not you think that Mars is a worthy target, we can get into a lengthy several hour debate about it. I'd be happy to do that at <laughs> Twitter at Andrew Butworth. Um, but it, it really is a stepping stone. You know, you don't need something as obscenely powerful as the space, uh, as the starship to get to the moon. But if the plan is to go to Mars anyway, well, we might as well use it to get to the moon and do some tests in an environment where if something goes wrong, you know, just like Apollo 13, we have a chance to save these astronauts. Uh, yeah. You know, a, a, a trip to the moon and back can be as quick as a week. You know, a trip to Mars and back can be as quick as about a year. So if something goes wrong on the way to Mars, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. So this is the test bed, and that's why we're using this souped-up rocket, because eventually the moon isn't the goal. It's everything else in the solar system. Well, very, very cool. I, I love the idea that you can go to the moon in a week. It's, you know, like book book off work for a week, get to the moon and come back, and you have a, a real good story for the office. Andrew Ferreira is our weird science guy. He works at the Vancouver Science Center. Will you keep looking at the skies, and where can people find you on Twitter again? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at the appropriately self-deprecating handle, uh, Andrew Butworth. Um, <laughs> and I'm also on the other websites. I will not say them because I do not want Elon Musk dropping in and shadow banning me from Twitter. But there are other social media platforms and you can find me on there. Well, right on. You know what to do. Yeah, <laughs> we know where to click. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you, Martin. This is The Shift Podcast. Are you okay with handshakes again? Oh, we're talking about the handshake again. The, handshake. the awkward handshake. Um, speaking of awkward handshakes, you know what's really uncomfortable is when if you go in for a handshake and you're really, really clammy hands and you don't want to draw attention to it, but you go with the handshake anyway, and then it's like you peel the hand apart and then you don't say anything. Or, or even worse, if you give someone a handshake and then you see them wipe their hands on your pants, yeah. on their pants after, it's like an insult, even if they're trying not to be mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's nothing worse than that when you know your hand is kind of sweaty or something or, or yeah, if you, yeah, handshakes are weird. I, I'm, 
my handshake ratio, as I said, I think yesterday, is about 80-20. Like for every eight handshakes, two of them are weird and uncomfortable. And uh, also, I always think of uh, Brian Regan, the comedian, uh, when he talks about getting greetings mixed up when he's talking to people, like, uh, like take luck. <laughs> <laughs> it goes backwards. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and then uh, he's going to the airport, and the cab driver says, uh, have a good trip. And he goes, you too. <laughs> yeah, you too, when you do that at the movie theater. Oh, enjoy your film. You as well. <laughs> you know, but... Uh, I think it's valid that we're all really uncomfortable with handshakes because COVID, we had to stop. You knew do the elbow bump, the fist bump, or you know, two feet apart. I was rewatching a TV show called Superstore, and the last season of that show is during COVID. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot when people were like really, really like six or six feet apart. You know, like that sort of stuff. So now that we're slowly returning to normal life, I still think people are a little adamant and hesitant with the handshakes. Yeah, I'm always taken aback when someone wants to shake my hand. I, I'm still not back <laughs> to that. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Um, and and how, I I mean, when's the last time you wore a mask? Last time I wore a mask. Oof. Uh, I, when was, well, I was, wasn't sure if I was sick, so I wore a mask to the grocery store uh, a couple of months ago. But I think the last time I wore a mask in public would have been uh, when I flew to Vancouver in the summer of 2021, I think, was the last time it was mandated, like full on. Yeah, it's yeah. been a while. It's yeah, I, I, I can't really remember. Uh, but uh, this week... Uh, Daniel Smith, the Alberta Premier, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau shook hands, and it was awkward. It was weird. I don't know what, it, like, now in hindsight, we've had enough time to watch the uh, film of the handshake like we watched the John F. Kennedy Zapruder film. Uh, what's mm -hmm. your thoughts on why that would look so uncomfortable? Well... The situation itself of two people that are on polar opposites of the political spectrum and are in a about to have a conversation about money and funding all that. So I think there's that. And it's the position of the hands because Danielle's hand, it's kind of like when someone's making a, a fish or a dolphin, you know, with their hand, like they're doing the wave or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And Trudeau went for the more traditional thing or like a curtsy. And it was like two different handshakes clashing at the wrong time at the wrong place with people that look about uncomfortable with each other. And it was just a perfect storm that would be guaranteed to create an awkward handshake. And I think the handshake usually should come at, either at the beginning of, of something or at the end of something, or, yes. or if they just signed a deal. This sort of came in the middle, and so why didn't they shake hands when they first saw each other? Probably because they <laughs> hate each other. Uh, but all of a sudden, I think it was time to shake hands, and it, it seemed very political. It seemed like, oh, let's get a shot of us shaking hands and smiling. And I guess mm -hmm. that's what uh, Justin Trudeau wanted, but that's not what she wanted, because I, I don't think she would want a picture of her smiling and shaking hands with the prime minister. That's tough. That's, I mean, you know, I also think that like Premier Smith is like can be 
civil enough to like it, it's just respectful it's just good etiquette yeah like, you and know, it, even if you disagree with someone and i think both of them understand that but it doesn't negate how they you know the, the just kind of the and the no vibe res- of the whole thing no disrespect to to daniel smith because i think um in a way it's it's justin trudeau doing the political thing you know the smile and shake hands and maybe yeah it was it was like that and you know it's important to realize this this handshake uh happened just before smith and trudeau uh talked about proposed federal legislation dubbed just transition aimed at helping workers adapt to a world increasingly reliant on renewable energy. So that's a pretty important topic for people in Alberta. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's important that, uh, you know, we, that doesn't get, uh, <laughs> and I mean, it's probably a pretty heated topic too in Alberta. So maybe oh, they, yeah. and so maybe they were, you know, it was at a peculiar, uh, at, uh, you know, a really unpleasant time or something anyway, but we know, uh, what the heck happened and why it was such an awkward handshake during a press briefing, premier Smith explained the awkward handshake with prime minister Trudeau and, uh, why it went viral. I had walked into the room and I'd already shaken his hand. So we'd already said our hellos. And then we were going to our respective chairs waiting for the media to come in. So I was taken a bit by surprise that he wanted to shake hands again. So it was, we kind of missed the landing. It was a little bit awkward, but we ended up having a a really good discussion after that. Yeah. I I think that's kind of makes sense. It does make sense. Because it did look like, it's like, why the heck do you want to shake my hand now? Yep. And, and I think it was for, you know, a photo op and, uh, yeah, so, yeah, good good for her. Yeah, and uh, she proceeded to shake the hand of every reporter sitting in the front row. That's actually pretty good. It's, yeah. it's pretty good. She's, she's spun this quite well, I will say. She's yeah. managed to spin this quite well. <laughs> Point Smith. Uh, are you okay with traveling to a new place? It's always exciting, isn't it? Oh, yeah. A little bit of anxiety. I, uh, I'm... I hadn't been able to do that for a really long time. I went to Las Vegas this summer for the first time. And even just stepping into a new airport that you've never been to is is kind of cool because, yeah. you know, maybe it gives you a little bit of a preview of what the city will be like. I'll never forget the first time I flew to Vancouver. It was right after the Olympics. And that uh, I that was a, I think, a billion-dollar renovation to the Vancouver airport to make mm-hmm. it up to yeah. stuff for the, for the Olympics. And I was like, this is awesome you, the incredible like Haida Gwaii totem poles and the waterfalls and the terminals and the all these art displays I was like this is gonna be cool and then I went to Vancouver I was like yeah yeah, yeah. this kind of fits the vibe and so I feel like that the whole travel part of getting to a new city for the first time if you're going for a good reason can add to just the overall experience of the whole trip yeah you know what excites me is when I hear another language coming from something really? like yeah. even on a plane, when I start to hear French being spoken with like for the flight instructions and stuff, right. and I, you don't hear a lot of French on the West coast. And, uh, I just thought, I, I just get all excited when I hear a, f- a language, especially if you're in Mexico or something or, and you hear Spanish, it's I, like, to me, that's, Oh, I'm actually doing something. I'm yeah, it's somewhere. like that's when it sets in that you're about to travel. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so uh, getting there, though, is not always that easy. Uh, a guy from New York planned a dream vacation, a summer getaway uh, 
in Sydney, Australia. Unfortunately for him, his flight did not take him to the Sydney Down Under. It took him to a very, very cold Sydney. A $700 trip from New York to Sydney, Australia. I saw mountain top covered with white snow. At that point, I knew I was in trouble. Mr Barnett was indeed heading to Sydney, except it was a different Sydney, in a different time zone in freezing cold Montana. It's a matter of acronyms, the SYD as opposed to SDY. Somebody has to fix that. The giveaway came when he touched down after the first leg at a town called Billings and saw the plane that was going to take him to his final destination. It was really funny. Kingsley came and he goes, I've got a problem. The lady behind the counter, Carol, was kind. Well, Carol, it was not a paycheck. It was a human being she was dealing with. Imagine how it would feel to think you're landing in Sydney, Australia, and here you are in Billings, Montana. Billings hotel manager Shelley Mann seemed to be the only one unsurprised. It's the second time we have had a guest who was trying to get to Sydney, Australia. But of course, he could have stayed to explore Billings, a former railroad town, now home to the tallest building in a five-state area, and uh, Boot Hill Cemetery, where most residents died with their boots on. He goes, I want to go see kangaroos. He was so excited to see kangaroos, he told me. No roos in Billings, but Mr Barnett did make a new mate. How could that happen? Just the time spent in the plane alone. Imagine the time to go from New York to Montana. I mean, how many hours would that take? I would think about three hours at the most, I guess. Yeah, check that out. What's the the biggest city in Montana? Uh, It's not in uh, Billings. I guess Billings, yeah. (laughs) Flights from New York to... Billings, Billings. Montana. Compare that to New York to Sydney, Australia. That must be... It's actually, it's it's a seven-hour flight. Oh, wow. It's a seven-hour flight with connections, and then to Sydney, I believe that's a, like, two days of travel, yeah. like, with layovers. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, the direction. You're on the coast of New York, and then you go, you're not over the ocean. You're flying over, or maybe he thought you need to fly over the United States first yeah. and then fly across the Pacific to get to to Australia. But I don't think, th- that's not how it, that's not how they get there. Uh, that's I'm pretty sure they cross the Atlantic and then there's a stop in, uh, in Africa and then there, or on the Southern coast, that's a long flight regardless. Yeah. But who really looks outside? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I'd never pay attention. I, oh. I, 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 yeah, I've, I've got the number here. How <laughs> there is a connecting flight. Do you want to take a guess how long it takes to fly from New York to Sydney, Australia? How long? 22 hours and 30 minutes of travel. Yeah. 22 out of a full day. It typically, it says uh, it's 25 hours is the average. Uh, that's uh, that's no joke. Yeah. So, yeah, it's too, that would suck, though. I mean, so excited. You miss your cruise and you, I mean, mind you, people in Montana seem very nice. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. They, they seemed really, he probably makes some friends and maybe it'll be his new adopted uh, tourist destination. Uh, Mr. Burnett uh, will try to make the trip to Australia in June. And despite accidentally flying to the wrong hemisphere, uh, Mr. Burnett said he's just grateful that Ms. Castellano was able to help him out. 
And I was surprised uh, that it was Sydney, Montana, because uh, in, in, this makes more sense. In 2017, 18-year-old Milan Shipper of the Netherlands uh, prompted some face palms around the globe after accidentally traveling to Sydney in Nova Scotia yeah. instead of the uh, Australian Sydney. I imagine, though, that Sydney, Nova Scotia has a little bit more to look at and a little bit more scenic than Sydney, Montana. Yeah. So at least there's that. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't even think that Sydney, Montana had an airport because it sounds like everybody said, oh, you got to go to Billings for the yeah. nightlife. Oof, I'm just looking at it. It's like, yeah, there's there's not much. There's not much in Sydney, Montana. <laughs> it's a little barren. Are you okay with email flyers? I get them just all the time. Yeah. I actually have to I have to clear mine out on Gmail every now and then. Let's see if I go to my promotions folder. I deleted my entire like ads, uh, you know, where it gives you all the deals. I deleted all of that about, I want to say six months ago. And right now I am at 22,852 promotional flyer emails in my Gmail inbox. And that is just too much. Yeah. Unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. You have successfully unsubscribed. I do that all the time. It's, it's everywhere. It's they're unavoidable. And sometimes though, you will get a pretty sweet deal or, 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 you know, sometimes there's some, uh, handy information in there, but for the most part, it's just, yeah, 10 of them every day and you don't look at any of them and then you just forget about it. And then there's another 10 the next day and the next day and the next day. And then you end up with 22,000 emails in your inbox. Do you have a bunch of email addresses? Do you have ones that you use for certain things? And, and then you have your, your golden one that you only you try to use just for just the best things? See, that would be the intelligent thing to do. I have two email addresses. I only have two. And uh, the one that gets the most amount of emails, including the junk stuff, is the one I use the most. And my other account is like for Twitter and like three other things. And it's quiet. Sometimes I'll go there to feel peace in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Um, yeah, so... Uh, it, it, it's a pain. Most, most people don't like email flyers. But uh, every now and then, a really good deal will pop up. A Calgary car dealership sent out one of those flyers last week. But the wording and the message within it have caused a, caused a, a pretty big controversy. What do you think about this? It was an urgent call to action with key words sure to drive customers to open it. But when they did, surprise. On the outside, Renfrew Chrysler's letter suggests a rent subsidy, but inside a significant catch, basically requiring customers to cash in on a used vehicle, a tactic social media users slammed, writing the company responsible for such ads should feel a sense of disgrace. This is just ruining their reputation. Why would they do this? And the topper, who in their right mind would buy from them after they just tricked them? It's definitely not bait and switch. Renfrew GM Sean Fennell says the mail-out was not intended to trick or mislead anyone. It was, in fact, he says, the reverse. It was totally set up to help people in times when everything's inflating, is really what it was. You buy a vehicle, their rent is X amount, that amount of money comes off of the vehicle, that's cash to them. As for the urgency of the message? I'm sure there's a lot of different words that could have been used than that 
and, and shame on me. I think that's an important first step. Marketing expert Neil Brigden says a sincere apology is great, but adds Renfrew's marketing strategy certainly wasn't. So just to summarize, the outside of the envelope from Renfrew Chrysler had the words urgent, open immediately, rent subsidy, but inside there was a cashback offer from the dealership for the sale of used cars. That marketing expert suggested the company look into some restorative measures which could include donating to rental relief causes. Okay, well, let's get into the the next Are You Okay with zero context. Huh? What are you doing in my swamp? Okay, Are You Okay with Shrek? Oh, how can you not be okay with Shrek? And... Shrek is interesting because it's a great movie. In fact, the earliest movie I can ever remember seeing in a movie theater is Shrek 2. Wow. And the only thing better than Shrek 1 is Shrek 2. And the weird thing is that millennials and Gen Z have this bizarre obsession with Shrek. I'm not sure why. I honestly, I've watched the movies a million times. I think it's just because we watched it so much as kids. And now as adults, we like to find ways to make memes about it or songs or whatever. And uh, I say I watch Shrek 1 and Shrek 2 like at least once a year. They're just kind of a, an animated classic that for some reason is inescapable for my generation. And I do hope they make another one. I would like to hear Mike Myers and Eddie Murphy do their thing one more time. Yeah, I, I can watch Eddie Murphy do anything. And this for Mike Myers, I think, is also a very joy. I guess Mike Myers, everything he does is joyful. But I think he's very joyful when he does the Shrek character, that voice. Oh, it's kind of, it was made for him. And you know what's interesting about it is that they tried to make the movie uh, in the 90s and Chris Farley was actually cast as Shrek. And there's actually, if you go on YouTube, you can find footage. They animated and did a test run of Chris Farley as Shrek, not Scottish. And it's really bizarre contrast because i mean he's one of the funniest people ever walked the earth but then you you know see mike myers and it really is mike myers role it's perfect for him yeah yeah and eddie murphy is so good and the sort of the sad thing for me whenever i read about these animated movies because i think of mike myers and and eddie murphy together but they're seldom in the same room when they make these movies bizarre Yeah, yeah they have such amazing chemistry and most likely anytime you watch an animated movie they were not in the same room when they recorded the lines. They they just recorded their lines and went home for a day, rinse, repeat, and probably never saw their co co uh, their co star. It's, yeah. it's crazy how they it's can put crazy. it all together and actually make it sound good. But the bottom line is, people love Shrek. They really love them. And one Shrek fan in Connecticut is asking for the public's help in retrieving their prized possession. It's a massive statue of Shrek. Shrek mm-hmm. has gone missing, and oh, police no. in Massachusetts are on the lookout. An alert was posted this week on Facebook page of the Hatfield Police Department, along with a picture of this 200-pound sculpture of the iconic cinema ogre outside an area home. The post asks anyone with information on its whereabouts to step forward. Speaking of Shrek, by the way, there's going to be a Shrek rave happening right here in Tucson April 15th. Tickets $22 on Ticketmaster. It'll be at the Rialto Theater. All things Shrek today. The enigmatic cinema ogre of Shrek. And that's from KGNU9. And if you're wondering, like I am, what a Shrek rave is, it's a rave, but with Shrek. They, they sound like this. What are you doing in my swamp? What, 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 what? 
are you doing in my swamp? Well, police issued this statement. If you have any information of his current whereabouts, please reach out to our department or return him in the condition you found him. The dragon sculpture he lives with is frustrated and lonely. Officers Aww. still hold out hope that Shrek will return with the help of the good faith of the public and the reach of social media. So that's what you young Shrek fans have going for you. Yep. And now all of Canada knows that Shrek is missing and Shrek needs to be found. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 